0: Hey there, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Margaret Petrie and this is Authentic Obsessions. The world is filled with prolific artists who have an obsessive hunger to create. In this episode, I talk with Megan Woodard Johnson, a mixed media artist from Wisconsin who uses, well, basically any tool or medium within reach to create her paintings. Megan explores personal histories and memories and she transforms these experiences into the hidden layers of her work. Megan's a true connector, hosting masterminds and reaching out to fellow artists to collaborate on exhibits and sharing tips about the admin side of being a creative. We talk about the schnibbles, her striped shirt, and her gift of seeing all the little details. You've got to go to her website and check out her work. You should follow her on Instagram at Megan Woodard Johnson Art and make sure to sign up for her newsletter so you know when the next round of masterminds is going to start. All the links are in the show notes. You can also check out her episode page at AuthenticObsessions.com for links and takeaways. And if you like this episode, if it resonates with you, if you think someone else might appreciate it, please share this with a friend. This project is not about me. It's about the community and sharing the stories and experiences of all these other artists so we can continue to create and be our best authentic selves. All right, without further ado, let's hear the conversation with Megan Woodard Johnson. It's really good to see you, Megan. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Yay, we finally get to do this. Yeah, it's been a nice long time coming. I've been really looking forward to it.
0: Me too. Megan, you are a mixed media artist doing abstract, non-representational works. I've read on your website how you, and I've seen in person, how you build up these dense layers of all kinds of different materials. You use acrylic paint, an oil pastel, graphite, charcoal, vintage papers, colored pencil, and it ends up being this amazing color-filled composition that you can't stop looking at.
1: Oh, thank you. I think that's a good list of materials. There's, I always say like whatever else I can reach while I'm working might end up in there.
0: <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Tell me about your impetus to use vintage materials in your work and what kind of materials you use. Can you talk sure. about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'd love to talk about that actually. That's one of those neat questions where I sort of was always drawn towards these certain types of materials and I hadn't ever really thought about why or sort of specifics around it until I started showing my work more and people started asking me that question. Since I use a lot of vintage paper materials, people tend to give me stuff and I could tell right off the bat if it was stuff that I wanted or didn't want. That was sort of the road of how I articulated what I used, which initially always felt just sort of instinctual. I love vintage materials that for me fall into sort of a time frame of maybe like the 40s through maybe 60s i was born in 74 and i think that i just relate to materials that were sort of in that range because they were either sort of neat old things i'd find in my grandma's house or my mom's sort of childhood era so they all felt sort of personal to me but when you get much older than the 40s there isn't like a big relationship for me um and the reason i use ma- vintage materials at all is because i'm just fascinated with the materials holding sort of a historical vibe there's these i like things that people used to accomplish something so i love ledger books with handwriting in them where people were just keeping records of what they were selling or buying um i love letters if they're good ones if they're friendly ones i got a dash of some like hate mail once that was like beautiful paper and gorgeous handwriting and i thought i was so lucky and then i read The letters, and they were terrible, so I never used those. Oh, my gosh. I I just feel like I love the stories that these materials carry because they helped people do things. So you'll commonly find, like I said, ledgers or letters. I love those books we used to learn our penmanship in that had sort of the the divided lines or the letters that you'd sort of trace around. Um, Maps are always great, and I don't need them to be of a specific place. A lot of these things, they... I use them more for their like visual interest and their texture. And it's really not until you get really up close where you realize like, oh, that's a handwriting manual or that is a picture from a old book um, or a map. And it's not necessarily about the narrative of those things. It's just sort of this, well, like I said, like a vibe they carry, a history of other people using them and having a life. And then they sort of get discarded. And I, I, Pick them up and start telling stories with them.
0: I love seeing, looking at one of your pieces and seeing a little snippet of something that I remember from my childhood. I know mm-hmm. a couple things come to mind. I was at Exhibit of Years and I saw a little flash card. I'm a little bit older oh, yeah. than you are. Oh, we no. still had flash cards in elementary school. Oh, sure. But I remember seeing the flash card and there was something, there was like the strip.
1: It's the edge of, From a spiral binding? Yes. It's like the schnibbles. (laughs) The schnibbles is all that I can call it. It's the stuff that when you tear off a page from a spiral bound book, it's that edge with all the little holes and the torn tabs.
0: That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. A schnibble. Who knew that was a word?
1: And the thing that I really love, so I grab these things because they sort of resonate with me. And then like I said, I use them as compositional elements. I'm not really building a specific narrative about schnibbles or about keeping ledger books or anything like that. When people are sort of drawn to the work overall by its composition and its color and that kind of thing, they're draw- if they're drawn in close enough to start finding those details, there's this neat thing that happens when we, everybody seems to sort of get it with those schnibbles in that they recognize what it is and it flashes them to their own personal memories of those things. But everybody that walks by has a similar engagement with that material. I love those moments in your life when you think that you have this sort of just personal thing and then you meet somebody who also has a similar memory or sort of fondness for that thing, there's an immediate connection then that you have. Over a snibble,
0: <laughs> right, right. Do you get people when you're at an art fair, or you're at an exhibit, or you're at an exhibit? Do people come up to you and tell you their reaction in person, or can you just sort of see it in their eyes?
1: You kind of see it. It's it's when yeah. they notice, like, oh, wait, that's a edge of a little golden book. You know, the sort of um, oh yeah, shiny right. gold edging with the real specific uh, line work on it. Definitely, people recognize handwriting. And it's yeah. There's sort of this wonderment that comes across. That's really fun. Yeah, that's
0: got to be really satisfying.
1: It is. And when people are looking at my work together with a friend, there's ends up being a lot of like pointing things out. And then you see them having that relationship together, which is neat as well.
0: Oh, that's really cool. That's Mm -hmm. a great conversation Mm -hmm. that happens when people view your work. The other thing I'm interested in is talk about houses and how that shape figures into your work and where that came from.
1: So that, the shape of a house is, it's an image that I've used, I think, back since college. I went to school for graphic design and uh, fine art printmaking in West Virginia and a gorgeous sort of countryside area. Not a lot unlike Wisconsin, honestly, but there was a lot of farmland and a lot of you know, East Coast, there's even, you know, more history. And so a lot of these sort of old family plots that would have these little sheds that were kind of breaking down like wooden sheds or or just you would drive past houses that were sort of abandoned. And I love that history of thinking like, whoa, somebody lived there and had a whole life and then they just Left. I wonder what happened, or how long has that little rickety shed been standing there, and is you know does anybody use it anymore? So I started I started using those images sort of in a more narrative way, and then they became symbolic for me just of like a holder of space and a holder of time for you, a holder of memories. So all the way through, sort of the arc of my building up my career, I was for a long time using this house image as well and it's the same thing it's all my interest is in memories and details and layered up experiences and um, that house became a shape that sort of made sense for that for me i no longer use it it's honestly a theme that i explored in a narrative or the sort of art labels like i used an abstracted form of the house but it was still representational up until about two years ago, when I took all those same ideas about layers of experiences and memories and moments and personal history, and made a shift to work still thinking about and entertaining all those ideas, but in a completely non-representational way. So now my current work is all just based in color and composition, very abstract forms. But that house shape, it's still, for me, is a great metaphor for memory, and place and time.
0: How many pieces are you working on at one time?
1: Oh boy, there's so many stages to my work because I I start with um, a layer of collage elements that are all just straight, these sort of usable vintage papers. Um, They create basically a background on all of my paintings. It's almost like the priming stage. So there's sort of that stage going on. And then I start adding color and marks and start building up composition in a really intuitive way. And so I might have, you know, several pieces that are just at a collage stage. And then some are getting their first hits of color. And then when I get to a piece that's had many layers of just really intuitive sort of um, freeform color added, I'll focus on one or two or maybe three at a time to build the final elements of the composition and bring them to completion. So I try to always have like different stages in my back pocket, because sometimes I'm not feeling super creative and the paint isn't flying, but I can sit there and listen to a podcast and lay down collage on a background. And then those are ready when I am ready to paint again. Sort of a roundabout question. I can fit three good sized paintings on my painting wall. I can fit multiple small pieces on you know other surfaces. So I try to have a lot going on at once. But when it really comes down to like the finalizing of a piece, I can almost always only concentrate on one at a time until it's done.
0: I love that visual of how they're spread out in your studio. Mm -hmm. Because before I had a studio or was an artist or, you know, entertained that idea, Mm -hmm. I always thought people just worked on one work at a time. It never occurred to me that you would work in a series or work on several, but it makes so much sense, especially with the way you layer all your pieces. Yeah. At, and, and depending on what kind of mood you're in, what kind of feeling you have, how your physical body feels,
1: right? your mental
0: state is. Yeah, that's all really cool. All of those
1: things plus deadlines it have an impact <sighs> on what I'm... <laughs> Of course, well, I'm working on it at a given time, <laughs> but yeah. Now that I'm, you know, trying to make sure that I have different shows available and, or, you know, deadlines for shows and for different galleries and just for sale. You know, I'm trying to work constantly, but that's you know, that's been a long time building up to that point of my career.
0: Tell me about deadlines. Do you like them?
1: I do. I do like them. They definitely sort of pull in my focus as they get closer. And what I really like now, again, saying that I'm a full time working artist, is I wanna see deadlines spread across my calendar over the course of a year. I wanna know that I have things that I'm working towards, whether they're self imposed sort of goals or whether they're actual show dates or drop off dates. That's like a signal to me that I've got like a year worth of work coming up. When I have long spans of time without a specific deadline, I just try and keep working. The work drives itself at that point, too.
0: Right. I want to go back. Was art ever play for you when you were a child?
1: Did you create? And when did it change? Mm. Okay, I think this is such an interesting question because has almost never been a time when I wasn't making art. My earliest memories are of coloring and building stuff with clay. I was sort of unfettered by the confines of paper at certain points and so would draw on walls and my mom has a great story of <laughs> I think she just got fed up with that even though I would t- never lacked for supplies I was very lucky but you know the wall is like a huge open canvas and so I must have scribbled on the wall at some point and then the punishment was removal of all drawing implements like literally I remember being in a in my closet in my bedroom and looking for like a pencil just a plain old pencil and this is very dramatic right it probably was like <laughs> Two day punishment, but then at one point
0: for we were, an artist, it sounds sort of like abuse, such,
1: such torture. We were making chocolate chip cookies, I guess, and she let me eat a couple of chocolate chips. And I must have—I don't have any memory of this, but I must have scrolled away a couple of chocolate chips, and I used them to draw on my bedspread. And I wrote my name, so I was not very smart, but I was like, "Gotta, gotta make a mark here. You can't, you can't hold it back." So I mean, wow, that's that like early stuff, you. right? Yeah. yeah, I remember you know, the fresh box of crayons and you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and I always was somebody that was making things. I just somehow I noticed this in one of my sons too. Like I just had an ability to make my hands my hands were always able to create the thing I was imagining. And so whether I was drawing or I was sculpting something out of paper or I was, you know, hot gluing cardboard boxes together to make a big, you know, play area for my toys, you know, just all sorts of stuff. I was always making things. Um, So that was always play, right? I was a kid, I was always play. And it sort of started funneling into my like identity and focus probably in school. Cause you become like the art kid, the one that can draw something. If you, someone brings you a paper and says, you know, draw a dog or whatever. You start to get a little bit of a claim for it. So then it starts weaving into identity which I think is an interesting element.
0: I was just thinking about in terms of when art was play and when it, you know, maybe sometimes for people it changes and motivation. People can be driven by external validation or some internal yearning or need or desire, right?
1: Right. And
0: do you think over
1: time what drives you has changed? I do. So an Uh, example of that in my life would be As I said, I was always an art kid. All through school, I was taking extra art classes or private lessons. I was in a great high school for art. And I went to college for graphic design and fine art printmaking. And that sort of probably was a point where there was this split because my major and what my focus was and where I was supposed to go like looking for a job or whatever was graphic design, which I loved as an art form, but I hated doing because it was all computerized. Right, right, right. my... Studio arts, especially printmaking became like that was where I'd go and I'd lose, you know, eight hours in a day because I was just in the print lab. So there's like this difference between this thing that was still art, but was supposed to be like my career path was no fun. But the play area where I was, I couldn't think of any way that that would end up becoming like a future or a job or anything sustainable, but it was all I wanted to do. And there was a conflict there between like your goals as a person who's getting ready to go out on her own and wants to have, be able to feed herself versus this is where I love to be. I ended up giving up all of it for what ended up being about 10 years. I took a total sort of a left turn and took corporate jobs. I moved to Milwaukee, met my husband, we had kids. I was still a creative person, you know, but it came out probably in how we decorated our house or how I made my kids Halloween costumes and things like that, but I wasn't doing it for myself. And it was a therapist that identified that that was a big source of unhappiness for me. And so the sort of resurgence of art for me as an adult came 10 years after I graduated from college and I had two young kids. And at that time there was no goal outside of, I just wanna make things again. It grew pretty quickly though, because I guess my drive to make things started to result in a lot of things. (laughs) Right, right. So then then you do shift pretty much, especially there's this point of like, well, I'm an adult and I'm a mom and why am I doing this? What am I going to do with it? There's almost like this sense where you're not allowed to just play at making art without it turning into a thing. You know, you can, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other hobbies you can have as an adult that nobody expects you to monetize. I don't know if it was an outside expectation or if it was throwback to the, the kid in me that always pictured I'd be an artist when I grew up that felt like, well, I'm making all this art. What am I going to do with it? As opposed be, to just
0: making it for its yeah, own sake.
1: Right. Making it for its own sake. And I think that there's a good, like you have to find a balance there because it's clear to me that making art is what I'm meant to do. And I'm unhappy when I don't do it. It's also clear to me that art is really important in the world, and the people that are able to make it deserve to be able to make a living from the skill that they have and what they're putting out into the world. So there's this place where I think you can keep the magic in your practice, and you're also allowed to say, hey, I want I want this to be worth something. I want this to be valued. It's going to have to be valued by the outside world if you're ever going to sell it or show it or you know, get grants for it so that you can keep having a life that lets you make it.
0: It's interesting. You said something about when people notice that you're good at something, there's an expectation that you make a living from it. And I've had several conversations with people in my adult life, someone I know who's a woodworker. He's very, very good. And everyone's always saying, why don't you quit your job and do this full time? He said, because if I did it, I wouldn't like it.
1: Mm, It's a real time. That's a dangerous... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And
0: when something is a hobby, and you derive just pure pleasure from it, and there's no outside expectation, and then you turn it into a paying gig, a job, something that has an external validation component to it, it changes the way you think about it sometimes for some people.
1: It really can. Yeah.
0: And there's a sweet spot there that I think people just have to find on their own. And it's different for everybody, don't you think?
1: I do. I do think it's different for everybody. And I think that it takes work to find that spot and create sort of practices for yourself to be able to return to it. Sometimes my work just has to be a job. I mean, I have to sure. track of inventory and, you know, think of how I can market this and get it out into the world and all that kind of stuff. But there's, I think, for me to make this be able to be a career, which is my goal. That is what I want to have happen. I just need to identify all the aspects of this career. Like basically I'm a self-employed you know, entrepreneur, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm a self-employed person making my own product. If right. you really want to put it into sort of like very technical terms, but the difference is, is that every time I make a product, I have to like find that zone, and it has to be unique, and it has to be real and authentic, and I can't get there unless I figure out how to separate that part of my work from the sort of admin, you know, part of the work. And so there's, everybody finds their own way, I think, to make that separation. Because if you get to the point where you're not able to tap into that pure, just making the work because you love it and you have to, then the work suffers and the whole thing sort of starts to fall down.
0: Right. So how do you cultivate rest and play now that your life is filled with admin and doing the work that you love? And a family and a dog yeah. and, uh, you know,
1: it's, yeah, it's tricky. I'm one of sort of the things I have to remember. And my husband is the first one that said this to me. And it's funny, it wasn't even about making art, but it's become like this mantra. I think we were like getting ready to host Thanksgiving or something that can be sort of like highly stressed. And there's a lot of moving parts and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I still had to do was take a shower. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, look, I can't take a shower for you you're the only one that can do that. <laughs> and it just made so much sense. And now it's become this sort of like, look, nobody else can make my art for me. So if I'm letting too much time go by where that's not the main focus, then I'm in trouble because my goals aren't going to be you know, there. And it, you're right. Like I'm still a mom. My kids are both still at home. Now we're in this weird world of pandemic learning and figuring out, all of that, it's bananas right now, but I feel really lucky because in the last five years, I've built a studio practice. I have a studio outside of the home. I have created a mindset that allows me to say, I'm an artist and this is my job. And that's another thing where, I think we, we talked a little bit about when you take something that's your hobby, um, and then you start, like, it's okay if it's a hobby, if it doesn't cost your family too much, and it doesn't take too much time. This is no longer a hobby. So it takes a lot of my time and I have to get myself out of that hobby mindset and recognize that this is my job and nobody else can do it for me. So if I'm not claiming the space on the calendar to say, I'm going to the studio for four hours, then the work's not going to get done. And also we know that I'm not happy. So there's sort of all these reasons that over the last many years I've identified and we've all decided are really important reasons to make sure that I'm still doing my job. And now I'm trying to make money, you know, in a reliable way, which is tricky as an artist, um, but I'm trying to make some sort of consistent income that because my kids are getting ready to go to college and I need to be an earner in my family. Yeah, <sighs> uh, You're rolling your eyes, it's true. It's like, I know. It's, a, it's overwhelming, but it's not impossible. But I think it's the work, I've done a lot of work. I've done training with you know creative entrepreneur coaches and I've done a lot of reading books. That sort of 10-year break that I took from making art, the career path that I followed was in project management. And I'm really good at breaking down a big thing into small pieces and knowing sort of what order to approach them in. And then in the last five years, I've gotten, I think, pretty focused on paying attention to cultivating the creative side and making sure it's still thriving and interested and curious. And I definitely have like low periods where I'm like, what is any of this even about and then I have other times when it's just like flying out of my hands so I also sort of have to recognize that sometimes it ebbs and flows and that's okay yeah
0: just like in any job mm-hmm. right yeah
1: and I think in the creative field too or at least for me with painting like I've started to recognize that those ebbs like those low periods where I'm not really making a lot or I'm not new ideas aren't flowing The best thing actually for me is to sort of step away from it for a little while, because what I've learned is there's stuff sort of percolating way back in the, you know, recesses of my mind and my heart that I, they just need to be allowed to do their own thing for a while. And then when I come back to work, the work flows and it sort of just takes over. And I remember a friend a long time ago talked about. The idea of when fields need to go fallow and it looks like everything's dead, but really like all the magic is happening underneath the soil so that the next planting season, it's really rich. And that is sort of a um, like a metaphor or symbol or whatever that always has made me feel like, OK, I can as long as that fallow period isn't immediately before a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with it. I tried to schedule a fallow period. No,
0: <laughs> you can't control everything. I uh, I love that image, and it's so true. And we forget that during downtime, things are happening underneath the surface. Yeah. I think about that with small children when they're very quiet, and you don't know what's happening, and you think they're vacant, but really things are percolating under there, and they just don't know how to oh, tell yeah. you about it. Yes. Right? Have you had that yeah. experience?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We have a lot, like I have that tendency too, and my one of my kids does where they sort of look like you're just sort of gazing out the window and not at all engaged, and then all of a sudden they snap back and it's like oh my God, you had a million interesting things going on or you were totally listening and now you have something really relevant to add. And,
0: mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, so I'm gonna come back to it again. Tell me about self-care. How do you take care of yourself?
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> did you notice <laughs> I dodged that? You did dodge <laughs> that. It's really, really hard and uh, yeah. any tips we can get from anyone else? Right, so full disclosure is that mm-hmm. I'm one of those people that like, I really believe how important things like, Meditation, like I used to have a really strong meditation practice, and I absolutely can tell you all the million ways it benefited me. And somehow it fell off of my radar, and I don't do it anymore. And I know I suffer from that, from not doing it. The same with yoga, like just mindful movement. Those are things that I know how important they can be. About two years ago, just some areas of our family life became like they just needed so much attention. And I was in that like giving, parenting, like everything was going outward mode. Mm -hmm. And I lost touch with taking the time to keep the practices that would keep me balanced. And I was working really hard because all the opportunities were starting to grow and you, you know, you grab them and you just go, go, go. And essentially what I've ended up with, I'll be really honest at this point is like um, a two year period of burnout. Or like a, like I'm at a burnout period that has been building for two years. And I could step back in any of that phase and say like, this is coming. Like, you better watch out. Look at how you're operating. It's not going to work. But then I couldn't get myself to like change the practices. Um, It's so hard. It's It's so hard. hard. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently trying to do like a reset. I've actually, this life is really stressful right now. And I have always, like I've, gone to therapy I've done I've done like lots of different things and acupuncture like I said being healthy like like my mental health has always been important to me but I recently recognized that it was really like I wasn't managing it well and the anxiety and stress over life at this point we had a big loss in our family a loved one and um Schools starting up and you know all this kind of stuff. So I just started taking an anti-anxiety medication. It's helping tremendously, and I feel like it will allow me the sort of headspace to organize my thoughts and my goals differently, so that I will have time for just 15 minutes of meditation. Like my goal is to build those practices back up, but I was so fragmented in my ability to pay attention to things that I just I couldn't get any of that to fit into my day. So that's currently what's going on with me with self-care. And um, physical movement is a similar part of it. Like I know that that makes me feel better. My art practice, because I know that you sometimes ask about this, just sort of, I actually feel pretty good on a studio day because I'm pretty active in the studio. I have I've, I work now fairly large. I, my work hangs on a wall for the most part when I'm painting. So I'm standing a lot. I don't actually sit a lot for my practice. And I'm moving around the work table a lot. So I actually feel like not like I'm getting a workout, but I'm not sitting and looking at a screen all day. So there's, I don't feel like there's a lot of recovery that I have to do after my art making practice, but there's just in my daily life. I need to move more and find that flow again.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so important for us to hear. Sometimes when Someone's going through a difficult time, it's so easy for us to be like, just take 10 minutes and meditate, just go to mm-hmm. one yoga class, just do this, just do that. And you know, on the surface, it sounds really simple, but it's not an easy thing because it is a mental and an emotional reset that you have to do in order to mm-hmm. take care of yourself every day in that way. And it's so easy to stop and you know the days become weeks and the weeks become months and then all yeah. of a sudden you haven't done yoga in 6 months and you're wondering mm-hmm. why your back hurts right. and it just seems so mentally exhausting to think about getting back to where you were at the end of that cycle and that That's you so have true. to start over i don't know That's for true. me it doesn't it just it feels mm-hmm. so overwhelming even though it's only 10 minutes a day or whatever
1: yeah yep. yeah, yeah there, it's there's true. something there i mean i think that like in our culture, the focus on mental health has, you know, become just much more positive and much more open in the last number of years. But at the same time, there's also like, there's a really strong culture of like, you can fix everything with this XYZ kind of like, I don't know, like, paleo diet or right. you know take these you know juice cleanses or like almost this sense i don't I, don't, I feel like i'm going to get in trouble but there's this <laughs> sense that you should be able to take it all in your own hands and manage everything very like homeopathically or through your own like movement and intention that i think still can make people feeling like going the medicinal route is like a failure or a last resort. And I felt that way. I mean, I think that's why it took me two years. I know a lot of people that are like in this boat and i never had a moment of judgment or hesitation to support whatever path they took to sort of get it in line. And for some reason, something about my personality kept thinking like, oh, it'll be okay if I just need to get back to meditating and I'll be fine. This is a really freeing thing to finally sit there and say like, dude, (laughs) you're not... There's so many layers of this that you need to sort of like reset in a different way. And then you can get back to those things because you love them, not because you're trying to like, I don't know, fix whatever. So
0: I just had this flash to your paintings and how layered they are and how complex and how there's so much hidden underneath the surface. And like people, we're just like that too, right? We're
1: super layered. We are just super detailed. And that's, I love that about us. Yeah. But yeah, it means that sometimes. Yeah. different things work for different people or different time moments in your life and your history. I always had this idea of if you could take, so this is like about a, it could be about a person too, but I always thought like, if you could take the four square blocks that like my neighborhood is, um, and we live in West Bend, Wisconsin, which is over a hundred years old. I don't know exactly like when we were founded. If you could take a hundred years worth of population surveys and topographical maps and plot surveys for housing developments and the energy bills and the voting profile and the population, like the census and layer them all up into like one view somehow. That's what I think is so cool about place that we share and history that was here before us and what we're doing, you know, and what came before and built what we've got right now.
0: Oh, that's a fascinating visual. Oh, Great, you gotta you gotta a run podcast, with that somehow. So I'm glad I yeah. Got it
1: across. <laughs> yeah. When I started making these this shift to fully abstract non-representational work, that was sort of the notion that I had in my mind. And for the first like 20 pieces, I didn't really have a title or I I didn't I just titled them all mapping moments, numbers one through twenty or whatever. Cause I just felt like I wanna just sort of map how de- like you think a moment is just like a flash in the pan, but they're very, very dense because they're made up of like a million things that came before to even create that moment. And then that idea of layering maps and layering my lines and my brushstrokes and my collage and all that kind of stuff sort of all coalesced. And I had this big sign painted in my studio that just said, these are maps to kind of keep me grounded in what my, I don't know, my series was about or what I was working to express.
0: Okay. We've gone this long now, but we must talk about your obsession. Can you tell us about it? How it manifested? I
1: can. I can. It's interesting because I don't think before your podcast, I would have thought that I had an obsession. And I know that you're sort of like loose with that actual word, but I love it. It took, I forget who I was listening to that sort of helped me think like, wait a minute, I do have one. And also it was somebody in, in a group that I lead pointing out like details are really important to me. And it's sort of all clicked it for me. I love details. So I love all those details that you get from talking to somebody in depth instead of just like cocktail, you know, party conversation. I love really learning about a place. We're the kind of people that if we could vacation by spending a month in a little town in like France and like living there that would be our preference as opposed to like you know two weeks to sightsee every you know every spot and so then that comes down to just the details that are enmeshed in these old vintage previously used materials that I use and like when I tell stories in my head about, you know, I wonder what this person did, like they're super detailed. My family always laughs at like the level of my dreams or my level of imagination and how specific and detailed it gets. I'm much more interested in, in minutiae and details than in like sort of, I can handle the big picture for sure, but I'm really drawn into small details. I hope that my work is engaging from like across the room, you know, that the composition sort of stands, you know, from afar. But my hope is that you get in real close and you see all the details, like there's little scratches, there's tiny collage elements, there's layers where you can all of a sudden discern that there's like seven different colors of paint underneath what you're, you know, finally seeing. And I love the depth that comes from that. How
0: does it show up in your everyday life, not in your... Art practice. I mean, I
1: think in my home, I pay attention to a lot of details. I love sort of, you know, layers of decorating and all that kind of stuff. But then there's other places where I notice it. Like um, if you're watching a movie, I love movies. I love story and I love the layers of depth in a character. But I also get really drawn into like all the minutiae that say the prop or set designer would build into a space to create the reality around that. Yeah, like those kinds of things that maybe nobody else would notice, I think, are fascinating. Have you ever seen the movie Garden State? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I love just about everything about that movie, but there was one moment in particular where the characters were in, like, the home of one of the characters' mother or something like that. And, I mean, she was a fantastic character and a little disheveled and a little kind of nutty, but just really wonderful. And her home was similarly sort of disheveled and all the way to the details of like behind her in one scene in the kitchen, the sort of plastic mini blinds that were pulled down in the kitchen window were sort of cockeyed, you know, like they hadn't been pulled down evenly and like oh, one sure. of the little plastic things was sort of bent. So more sun was coming in. And I just, somebody decided that, like somebody on that crew of that movie decided we got to make this, Represent how this woman would raise and lower a window shade real abruptly, and it would be, it would end up like this. And I just think, I think that's brilliant.
0: Some fiction writers create these characters who have these incredible backstories that you would never know and that they would never list in detail in the book itself.
1: Yeah, we build these worlds. And yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. If you're really kind of paying attention to how the real world is nuanced, that's going to you know, inform how, you know, you decide to attach things to the fridge in the back of the scene of this minute of a movie, you know, right. and it's, I just think all of that stuff is really, I think all that kind of stuff just indicates how richly layered we are as people and our experiences are, and then we start to overlap in places where we don't know. I don't know if this fits in this part of the conversation, but I used to think about how, you know, there was this time of day when I'd be making dinner and the kids were in the kitchen or maybe we were all eating dinner or something like that. And you're just having this moment that is just, it's you and your family and like what your child is deciding they're going to eat that night and who's going to do the dishes and everything like that. And it feels so insular. And then all of a sudden I'll like go a little bit wider and think like, oh, almost everybody on the street is having some sort of relatable experience. And it could be relatable in the fact that they're struggling to figure out what to have for dinner or they're missing somebody who should be sitting there at dinner. You know, but there's something that's like a thread that kind of connects what feels like these individual and separate moments or experiences. But then you've got a neighborhood of people or a town of people that are probably somewhat similarly situated.
0: Let's talk about your studio space. You've said a little bit about it before. I'm really interested if there's something in your studio that you can't live without.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I'd like to say I can't live without my studio. I don't necessarily (laughs) think that's true. Like, I think that um, I could make art anywhere and I would figure it out. But I am really lucky right now. Um, For the past two years, I've had a studio mate uh, in West Bend and we share a space that used to be an apartment, like a second floor apartment over a business. When we first started looking for a studio, we pictured, you know, the big converted warehouse space that would be kind of nicely, interestingly gritty, and maybe there'd be other artists. And we just couldn't find anything like that happening in West Bend, which is where we live. And it was important to both of us to be close to our homes. She, my studio mate still works full time as an art teacher. And I just wanted to be close because my kids were still young. So anyway, we kind of broadened out our search and we came up with this place. You walk in and there's like a little almost like a entryway, and then there's a sitting area that we were able to sort of bring in some comfy chairs, which can be dangerous, but um are really nice <laughs> to have there. And then it's because it's a it was an apartment, there's like all these different rooms. And so I have a room that's my making my art studio space, um, and hers is right next to mine. They actually open to each other with French doors, so there is a flow and openness there. But they're, you know, maybe like 12 by 12, so they're not the hugest rooms. But then beyond that, we have a really pretty big room that we sort of originally were thinking might be a classroom opportunity or teaching space, but so far has really mostly been about storing or framing. It's just a great big workspace. And then even another small room that we dedicate now to using for taking photos of our finished work. So it's it's way more space probably than two people need, but we've had a fun time filling it up. And when you were talking about like picturing my work sort of stacked all over the place in different stages, I just always have to throw out a thanks to Deb, my studio mate, because she's so nice i take up like the whole damn space i have stuff every- <laughs> right now i'm getting ready for a big show so there's stuff like everywhere and she continues to say that it inspires her and she it makes her happy and not that i'm crowding her out of every <laughs> last
0: inch it would it's make wonderful. me happy to walk in and see all of your artwork everywhere in different oh, stages it's beautiful good. it's vibrant it's gorgeous it's thought provoking yeah no it's lovely so what's something that you can't live without
1: Oh yeah studio um, <laughs> okay, so i this is such a silly thing i mean i have I'm really lucky. I have great supplies and uh like a great space i there's two things really. I have this huge work top table that my husband built me for this space that is on wheels, so I can kind of move it around and like I said, I mostly work oh, well, I think I have three things actually so there's my work top that my husband built, and then just like two weeks ago, he built me a False wall on the the wall that I used as a painting wall. I was just sort of nailing stuff up in different places as I worked on it, and then he built me a um, pegboard wall. So now I can move canvases around really easily, and actually, because of the way it worked out, I can fit more work on the wall at once, and that's been a game changer. Then the best thing is this little oh, I'm going to have to send you a link for it because I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a it's like a metal crank that you can put your paint tubes through so it can squeeze out every last drop like you could also picture using it for a toothpaste tube sure sure um and I'm oh cool blanking on the name but I'll I'll send the link so you can okay. put it in the profile it was maybe like seven dollars I think I got it in my stocking one year and I was more excited than anything else it just makes me really happy.
0: Oh, that's going to be great. People are going to love that.
1: <laughs> Dude, I love the like simple machines when we did the simple mm-hmm. machines unit in science as kids. And they're just like really basic. This is just like two gears and a little crank and it squeezes out the, the paint.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. And almost all of your photos, I see that you are wearing an apron. Do you is that I want to know if, like, you have a uniform? Is it, do yeah. you wear the same kind of thing to the studio every day? Is there a, a transformation that you go through to go to the studio, right. or do you just head on over there and whatever you're wearing and throw the apron on?
1: I basically wear the same outfit every day (laughs) that I come to the studio. And so the real problem is when I like need to run errands after work because I'm like, I don't even think about it. I leave the house and whether I have like blow dried or styled my hair, usually it's wet. I come here, I I throw it up in bobby pins to keep it out of my face. And I'm wearing like the same striped shirt and my studio mate is... (laughs) well aware that I've been wearing a striped shirt to the <laughs> studio for like 3 years.
0: <laughs> this is the best answer ever. I, I love like, this.
1: <laughs> and you like in, you know, jeans in the winter and it's always like the same pair of jeans and it's not because I get paint all over them. I think maybe because I mean I'm not somebody who has or wants to have a million different clothing options. I kind of like, you know, if I find something I like, I'll buy a couple of them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'll settle into the same sort of outfit because maybe it will get a little paint on the hem or something like that. And then um, the striped shirt turned into a uniform and I actually did a residency at my studio mate Deb's high school art classroom. And I think I wore that striped shirt probably every day. (laughs) She's nodding. She's in the studio. (laughs) And, um, And then I found a new striped shirt this summer, so I'm still in a striped shirt. But yeah, I have this apron that I I love it. It's comfortable. It's all nice and worn in. And a year and a half ago, I had good headshots and pictures taken here in the studio, and I had some where I was dressed nice. And then I put on the striped shirt and the apron and the pictures were phenomenal. So they just were so natural and I felt so great in those pictures. So that's what's on my website and all that kind of stuff. Right At this point, the apron, it's so gross, Margaret, because I'm constantly wiping my hands on it. And usually it's not the paint. I don't get a lot of paint on my hands, but I always have glue or medium on my hands from the collage part of the process. So most of this apron is now like this weird it's stiff plastic feeling. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. You don't even get the benefit of like all the colors on your apron. No, I don't.
1: And it like no longer, if I do try and wipe a brush or like sometimes, you know, you get a brush with too much water and I'll try and wipe it off on the apron to absorb some of the water. And it just beads up and rolls off because it's like, I probably need a new apron. My friend Poppy sent me a new apron and I love it. And I probably need to pull it into use. But this one just is this like comfortable old security blanket of an apron that I've had since my first studio space so that's mm-hmm. my uniform that's great and all yeah, right and then I always have to do errands after work and I'm always thinking Damn it, why don't I dress like a human that is well, fit to go out in public <laughs> well and in the
0: winter you don't have to worry about it because you can put on your coat and nobody will see yeah. what you're wearing underneath so yes. we're almost there yeah, you're almost out and of the I danger zone
1: yeah. And I always have paint like on my arms and all over my fingers. I'm just kind of a mess. I don't know. I'm happy Well, I'm here. I get really into it. I work until the very last second when I need to leave. And I just, I don't know, that sort of cleanup process is yeah. not my priority.
0: When the kids were young, when Duncan was young, we would say, (laughs) look at how dirty you are, like your legs, your knees, you must have had a good day. Like that was the mark of a good day.
1: Yes. Always a sign of a great day.
0: When you were talking about your husband building you the table and the pegboard wall, it reminded me of support systems. Talk about your support system. When things get tough, you're having a hard time, where do you turn? Are there Mm -hmm. books or tools or people?
1: Yeah, I feel I feel really lucky. You know, I moved out here after art school and had nothing because I went into corporate world and I didn't really find artists. I wasn't really making anything. So I feel like I've sort of built a support network for myself in the last 10 years that's been incredible. And I will mention again, um, my husband has been amazingly supportive in just sort of emotional ways and then literal ways. When I first decided with my therapist when my kids were little that I needed to start making art again. I don't think a weekend had passed before he helped me clear out an area of our basement and paint the walls so they were white and not dingy and set up tables so he, you know, was all about it right away. About 5 years ago I had sort of taken a little 18 month break from making art to do a part-time job just to get out and with people and I was doing event planning for a museum. And that had to end because it needed a full-time person. And right at the same time, I had a friend who had rented a studio space here in town and had a room that she wanted to sublet to me. So that was amazing because she just sort of said, hey, I think you should start painting again and you should set up a studio with me here and it will be cheap and this and that. And But it was my husband that when I went home and said, all right, we already decided that we could afford to go back to being a single income family and lose the little income that I was making. But now I want some of our money on a monthly <laughs> basis to pay rent at a studio. And he said, yeah, go for it. Do you think you'll sell enough to like cover the rent? And I said, I think for a year, I need that to not be a part of the equation because I don't know, I haven't been painting for Eighteen months. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. It'll take me a little bit of time to get off the ground or what I'm going to want to do. And he was like, "Okay, we'll figure it out." So there was like so much support there for me to keep going. And again, I should state like we had always been a single-income family, so my income has always been additional. Now that my kids are getting closer to college, it's important that it gets you know a little bigger. But he's always been super supportive in all those ways. And like I said, the whole phrase of like I can't do that for you. Like you have to go do your work. He's been great about helping me learn to protect my time and actually take this seriously. And then on the creative end, I have a couple of friends in a nearby community that I I sort of met, I think, through Instagram, but then they turned out to be local. And we started doing, one is Mindy, who was on your podcast excellent episode. And then the other one is Amy Sochka, who's also a Cedarburg artist and an abstract painter. And we both, it felt like the three of us were kind of in a similar boat of working either out of our homes or our home communities, as opposed to like Milwaukee, where there's a lot of multi-artist studio spaces. And we were juggling family and work and all that kind of stuff. So we started meeting on the first Monday of every month for a work and coffee date. So we'd work like either at one of our studios or at a coffee shop and we would sort of chat for a little bit but then we'd actually get down to work and either bring our computers with and be working on admin or talking about like ideas that we had or um, Mindy and I co-curated a show and so we just used a lot of those meetings to like plan that kind of stuff and just support each other as artists so that sort of is local and then Instagram. Like I have made some really wonderful real life friends through Instagram. And two of them, we've started a monthly sort of Zoom call where it's almost like a peer group where we support each other and the goals that we have and we just cheer each other on. And that has been fantastic. And that came from I really admired these two women's work. And then I noticed that they followed each other and would comment on each other's work. And then somehow the three of us just started chatting and then we started Zooming. And now we want to do shows together. And, you know, like they become really fast, good friends. So those are sort of my own support networks that are really important to help me keep moving forward.
0: The more people I talk to about social media, it's so interesting that there's all this press about how social media, you know, is killing our kids, and it's terrible, and we're on our phones all the time. But for artists in particular, I feel like it's such a supportive community. And I have met amazing. People through Instagram that I never, ever, ever would have met in any other way. And it's just such a clean, simple platform Mm -hmm. that I'm really grateful for it. But it can get out of hand. So you have to be kind of careful with it, I guess.
1: It's another one where you have to like know yourself and watch what's happening because I definitely have times when I just, I like this weird sensation where I'll scroll you know, in the morning, and I follow artists that I admire, I love their work. And so three years ago, it was just all inspiration. And it's not that I'm not still inspired by their work. But I got to this weird point where it's like the creative part of my brain gets tricked into thinking it's already done something and it's like, I'm good for the day. I already was creative, but I actually wasn't. I was just consuming other people's creativity. Um, So the same probably part of me that makes it hard for me to jump back into yoga or meditation or whatever, like I'm bad at, I have a hard time breaking habits. And I for sure have a habit around scrolling too much on Instagram and I can feel this, you know, just sort of this blah kind of feeling after too much consumption. And then I have to kind of work hard to get myself back into my own creative headspace.
0: Very self-aware of you to notice that to begin with. I mean, right. Just, right?
1: You know, two years later, I'm still trying to break the habit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the first step. Exactly. Acknowledge the
0: problem, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit more about building community. I am so grateful for to you for introducing me to so many people I've had on the show already. Mm -hmm. I feel like you are a common thread and a huge connector. I know that you have started a mastermind group and you've been through a couple of those. Talk a little bit about how you build a larger community with all these artists.
1: Well, I think the sort of real reward of reaching out like one-on-one to a couple of artists and finding them so like immediately accommodating uh, for like a phone call or a a chat to sort of do almost what like in person I would say do a studio visit right that i started thinking more let's see well two things happened a couple of years ago i did a couple of really big online courses one was for creative entrepreneurs and one was a you know sort of painting abstract course at the time i looked at them as being at a point in my career where I needed to invest so I could grow. So I thought, well, hey, if I was in a corporation at this stage in my career, somebody would be paying for me to go to a conference to learn more. That's me. I got to pay for it. I got to find that stuff and I'm going to pay for it. And I learned a ton from those in terms of like the content that they were sharing. But I also learned that being in a really large online group was a bad fit for me. It was sort of too anonymous. And what I was really craving was some actual time with maybe like five to 10 people sharing the screen and sharing an hour where everybody got to talk and every you got to hear everybody's point of view instead of just the speaker's point of view. And so, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how all this evolved, but I heard of the idea of masterminds and how artists could use them and that's really just like a small group committed to meeting on a regular basis to sort of touch on topics that are relevant to each of the members like in each call I started picturing how that would be really fun and I talked to another friend who ran runs a membership group and we kind of she helped me sort out like what I was really aiming for and then i on Instagram, I just on stories, one time I just said I'm thinking about starting an artist mastermind group. You know, DM me if you're interested. And within like that afternoon, I had like 12 people saying I'm totally interested. And I oh thought, yeah, cool. Oh, I guess I better figure out what this actually is. Like I have to now. I have to invent it. And um, you know, I researched all sorts of stuff. And I had had these experiences of being a a member in different size groups. But yeah, pretty quickly I kind of formed this concept around having five to six artist members plus me. I act as the facilitator. So I'm not sitting there really as a teacher or um, a workshop leader, but I try and bring together artists that are at similar stages of their career. And we meet twice a month and the topics that we discuss each time are determined by the members like three days before the meeting. So it's really like what's on people's minds at that moment. And I just structure the meetings so that we can talk about two to three topics and that everybody gets a turn to sort of weigh in with what they have to offer or what they're trying to learn about this topic. Um, and so that that's just sort of a, a format that I really love. I've been in real life small group discussion groups, and I just love being able to really get to know the people and hear all their different perspectives. It's really fun because people tend to... Join saying, I don't really know that I'll have a lot to offer. And every call, they have something really that's very relevant to say, and that is a fun thing to watch. People sort of get to the point where they're like, "Oh, I I do know this stuff," and then also I've learned all this other stuff, and you end up with like a cache of knowledge from it, like a big hive mind that's real focused. I
0: love how you started this
1: by accident. No.
0: (laughs) Yes. No. Seriously, I think you did the exact right thing. You asked. People what they wanted before you created it, and so often people create a course, a thing, a group, and then they wonder why no one joins in because they haven't asked mm-hmm. what the need is out there in the community. So oh, I have read point. this several times and heard this okay. on other podcasts that you need to ask your audience what they need first mm-hmm. before you create it. You can always sure. create it right. once you figure that out. So you did you did just the right thing yeah. without knowing well, it. I think- but-
1: there's also and you, I think you hear this a lot too. I basically created something that I was looking for. Yes,
0: yes. You know, like I exactly. thought I was
1: gonna find it in these big programs and I thought I was gonna find it in this other way, but I was like, this is none of these are quite right. I guess I'm gonna make what's you know, what's right for me. Yeah, it seems to it seems to be working really well. I'm now in the second round of them. They run for six months. And this time I'm running two different groups. So that, and that's about the max that I feel like I can manage. A lot of these things, all of a sudden you get really excited and you're like, how can I scale this up? The whole point of this is that I didn't want it scaled. I wanted it small and intimate.
0: Right. It becomes something different then.
1: mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It does. It does. And it, and it serves a different purpose and that's fine. But so far it seems like I've been able to somehow find people that are looking for what this is doing. And so far so good. Yeah, yeah, to keep cool. doing them.
0: Yeah, no, you should. I know several mm-hmm. people who've been in it and have talked about it as such a wonderful thing. Oh, Wasn't
1: Jess saying in one of yours? Yeah, she was. Yeah. She was in my first one. Oh, and then that sort of loops me back to like the groups that I put together when when you joined. I was just about to launch my second series of mastermind groups and start taking registrations when the pandemic really hit in the US and people were starting to get shut down. City orders, just the whole landscape shifted, right? And it felt there were two things. Like, I felt like this is an investment. I mean, this is a paid thing because we, like, I put a lot of work into it. And there's sort of a commitment that comes when you decide you're going to invest in your career. And I thought, I don't know, things are shaky right now for people. I don't want to sort of get them to sign up for something that ends up being a bad fit financially. And I also, like, in the first couple of weeks of all of the intake of news about COVID, I was my brain was super not functioning. I mean, I had a day where I started to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So like a whopping three ingredients, like two steps. <laughs> and I like got distracted by something and an hour and a half later wandered back into the kitchen and there was half of my like the sandwich was still only half made. Like I thought <laughs> I cannot serve as a facilitator of a sandwich. I am not gonna run a real group right now. (laughs) Well,
0: (laughs) you are very (laughs) self-aware. Well, I was
1: like, I can't ask people to like sign up with me if I can't even get to this level of organization. But I also knew that I really needed to be in touch with artists as this thing was rolling across our new landscape. So yeah, so I, that one I sort of just threw together like weekly artist chats. um, And it was what, like maybe eight or 10 people. Abby was in one, which, yeah. And that was so fun. It just felt so supportive to once a week be like, "How's everybody doing?" And like, it was great. Yeah, I looked forward to that
0: every week. And I didn't fun. think I would have much to say. I wasn't making a lot of art at the time, and but just to connect with other like-minded souls, I think is right. just so important. Yep. So, is there a non-artistic endeavor on your bucket list?
1: Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Three for a loop on that one. Yeah, you sure did. You can give me any time to prepare that? I mean, <laughs> I think. Well, I think travel. You know, like we would, we just would really love to be able to get out there, but there's that, there's all these components that make it a little tricky. You know, my kids are still in the house. So the idea of going and renting a place for a month is logistically a little tricky, but down the road, like, absolutely. Uh I would like to experience new places, whether they're in the States or in other countries or whatever, I would like to experience new places and the way that people live in them. But yeah, there we go it's a good bucket list. I'm sure there's other ones.
0: I love that. That's on mine too. Are you ready for your rapid fire questions?
1: I am. Yes. Okay.
0: First one, music, podcast, audiobook, or silence?
1: Okay. This one, all of the above, but in different uses. So okay. um, when I'm in paint mode, like I talked about all the different sort of layers of my process. When I'm really painting and really just letting color flow in that very intuitive state it has to be music but when I'm in the first stage of layering collage to create the background um, a podcast or an audiobook will work I like just talk and content and I like learning things and and sometimes I just when I'm on that deadline mode I have to listen to something that doesn't need a lot of engagement but has like a steady energy. So Harry Potter <laughs> audiobooks, which again, I think Mindy mentioned and she introduced me to, I've always been a Harry Potter fan, but I've listened to the Harry Potter series on Audible like 700 times by now. And <laughs> it can just like, it's like this calming weird thing where like if I have to frame and wire and package like 10 paintings, I can just plow through them with that like really familiar rerun of a story going th- through my head. And Boy, that,
0: you know, that narrator must be really good too.
1: Oh, he's fantastic. Right? Oh, he's great. So yeah, it's okay. like, and it is, it's sort of this quality of a rerun. Like, you know, when you're like, oh, I don't know what to watch, I'll just throw this on. And actually sometimes when I'm at the very final stages of a painting and it's just the last few little tiny marks that are needed, those come to me best in silence. It's almost mm-hmm. like I've mm-hmm. shut everything down and I'm actually getting ready to clean up and leave. And all of a sudden a new burst of focus will come when there's nothing else playing. Great.
0: What is your comfort food?
1: Carbs. <laughs> I really, And I just am sort of identifying the potential gluten intolerance. And so that's a little makes me a little bit sad. And I also like when we're talking about like studio, I don't know if this is comfort, but it feels almost like that Pavlov's dog law, like, I have to get a cappuccino before I go to the studio and like start with drinking one. I make a cappuccino at home. It's very good. But there's something about like having somebody else make me a really good cappuccino. The other day I went to the studio and I was super aimless for like 45 minutes because I didn't have one. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous. You just need to be able to work without that. But it's super, apparently really part of my process. Oh,
0: that's funny. Okay, describe your favorite outdoor spot.
1: Whenever this kind of a question comes up everywhere, I feel like the answer should be, there's two sort of sides of me. I absolutely love being in a lake, like a freshwater lake, especially a Wisconsin lake, like one of those nice small ones where you hardly there's hardly any houses around it. And you're just like being in a lake is one of the most restorative moments for me. And I didn't actually get in any this summer, which might be speaking back to sort of my imbalance is that I didn't do that. And I need that. um, And I love it. So that's like a real sort of, you know, sort of that submersive experience in a lake is really big for me. But then I also I love cities and towns and places where people live and where people have built things and the sort of layer, all those layers of sort of human activity is like super exciting to me. So. I, you know, I like to hike and I like to do all that kind of stuff, but I really, if I have a free day, I'll go towards Milwaukee. I won't go towards the hiking trails. What
0: would you do with a financial windfall?
1: We are at a point where both of our kids are college bound. And so the first thing you think, like if I win the lottery, I'd be able to pay for my kids to go to college. And
0: and there's still money so left over. Assume that. Right.
1: Yeah. That's, I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming a pretty big windfall. Yeah. yeah. It would be back to that travel experience and back to that being places with a length of time and sort of a depth of experience where we can just sort of, you know, like figure out where the real people eat and go grocery shopping in the market and, you know, just have a little slice of life in a different place. So as many opportunities as we would have, as I would have to do that, I would take.
0: Megan, thank you so much. I can't tell you enough how happy I am that you're here. And
1: thank you. The
0: influence that you've had on my life and my artist community, I really, really appreciate it. And don't ever stop building those communities and doing those masterminds because I know that you're making a lot of people really happy and engaged and feeling like they're not alone and that they're seen and oh heard gosh. by someone. Thank so you. I think oh, that's, that's what we all like, want.
1: That's just the nicest thing. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad to been here I'm really excited that you're doing this I'm just I'm amazed at how quickly you got it off the ground this almost or maybe I don't know what all the backstory was but it feels almost like the mastermind thing where it's like you said you were gonna do it and all of a sudden what is this like episode I don't know 12 or something it's crazy well done I love the dialogue that you that you sort of grow in these conversations it's really it's really special and it's unique in the creative podcast land so please keep finding more people thank you I will (音楽) Pump, 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 p